Create Out Loud is brought to you by Anchor.fm. And if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast so you can, yes, create out loud. It's free. They give you tools so you can record easily on your phone or your computer. They'll distribute the podcast for you. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started. Because yeah, I want you to create out loud. Hey, welcome back to Create Out Loud. How's your creative life going? I hope these episodes in season one have been helping you feel, know, and learn that creating what you want is entirely possible. I hope that the stories, the triumphs, and the struggles of our guests have been companioning you (laughs) on the creative journey. I'm really pleased with this week's episode. I think you're going to find this both a really technically interesting conversation, but incredibly uplifting. It's with Lori Frankel, and she is a novelist whose breakout novel, This Is How It Always Is, was a Reese Witherspoon book club choice, a huge bestseller, and it's a story of a family and their dealing with, grappling with a transgender child. Her new book, which I also think you're going to love, I couldn't put it down, is One, Two, Three. And it's also a book about big ideas and big struggles and a page turner at the same time. Without further ado, let's talk to Lori. Lori, when I met you 10-ish years ago as part of a Seattle literacy group that you are founder of, authors that I got to be part of before I moved, I was struck immediately by how inclusive and welcoming you are. You know how you're a new person in an established group and you're always like, oh, no one's going to like me. And, And it feels like that carries into your fiction. And that on some level, all of your novels, they're about creating a better world. Do you think that the core of who we are shows up in our writing, even if we try to hide it? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, but it certainly does for me. And I don't try to hide it. And I also kind of feel like that is, however, that isn't what I set out to do. And it comes back around that way. Yeah, you set out to craft great stories. Yeah. I mean, I was reading the new book, One, Two, Three, and the writer coach in me is like, oh my god that's so oh my god that's so so, I I can't say what she does y'all because it would give it away you need to read the book but I was like oh that was really clever oh my god that's amazing so you're you're truly fantastic at story thank you but this deeper thing comes through for me that feels very important I appreciate that I really I first of all I'm delighted to hear it and also I appreciate it it's not that I don't read other things and it's not that I necessarily set out to write these things but I do kind of feel like in the end, I, I want stories that are hopeful and uplifting and leading with love. And I don't want them to be cheesy and I don't want them to be easy. Oh, that rhymed. Dang it! <laughs> <laughs> um, Lori Frankel and I don't do cheesy and I'm not easy. <laughs> Both true. It, you know, it just kind of works out that way, I think, yeah. in the telling of it. You've written openly about two really private things in your life, about choosing to adopt a child when you could likely have had a biological baby. And you wrote about your son deciding to become a daughter. Or, uh, I guess that's one way to say it. <laughs> one way to say it, yeah. yeah. At the time, that seemed to be the case. Yeah, they're both very personal essays. Was it difficult to open yourself up like that? It's different than writing fiction. These are personal essays about you and your life. 
Yes, wildly different. And in fact, that itself is is really remarkable thing that it was significantly easier to write a 350 page book than a 1500 word essay. <laughs> it's certainly saying something. And two, that that my impulse to tell this story was was to make it up. Which is certainly in part my my disposition as a as a human. Like I'm very much a novelist by disposition, I think. But it is true that I have a tendency towards privacy, I think. It's hard to it's hard enough to put your writing and your creative work out there because it is it feels like you've put your soul on a piece of paper and people won't like it and they'll be mean about it and then how do you go on? If you add to that also like people's judgments about your parenting, then it becomes very difficult to like get out of bed in the morning. So it wasn't difficult to write, but it's very difficult to publish. Why did you do it? I mean, also such a good question. Um, <laughs> I mean, and, so, and there's an extent to which the answer is actually. I'm laughing. I'm laughing at your face, everybody. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not laughing at asking a question. <laughs> I'm laughing at her. <laughs> what she, her face is doing. <laughs> yes, it's so often doing that actually. <laughs> In some ways, the the answer to that is really practical, which is that when I when we were publishing the book, I was saying to my publisher like extremely important that we protect my kids privacy now and going forward you know five years from now and 10 years from now and 15 and forever from now so I can't have her on the internet in, in connection with me at all and I'm not in the way of promoting this book going to be talking about all of this private stuff it's, it's the book is fiction and this isn't really anybody's business and that's one thing you know to share something of yourself but it's still the way to be talking mm -hmm. when it's your kid the publisher said okay here's what we should do what we're going to do is is tell the part of the story that you are comfortable sharing put it out there in advance of the book coming out so that we can point everybody to this 1500 word essay and say here's this here's her story this is what you can have in the way of that it, first of all it was very much that essay is very much my story not my kid's story and that i was just in control of what i was going to share and and the frame of sharing it that we're talking about this is how it always is, uh, Lori's New York Times bestseller. And we'll also be talking about one, two, three, her brand new book. Is it on the New York Times bestseller list yet? Not yet, I don't think. It's only been out a week. So okay. Well, Fingers I'll, crossed. Be, I'll be celebrating with you right, when it you. is. You say you have a disposition of a novelist. You were getting a PhD in literature and English literature and Shakespeare, I believe. I was. <laughs> so I dropped out of graduate school. Yeah. yeah so, so, so connect to me dropping out of graduate school and the disposition of a novelist. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, it's a really fair question. So I was, I was not getting an MFA. I was indeed in a PhD program for literature. And you would think that people who study books and study literature would be a lot of crossover with writing it. But in fact, those are so wildly different that, that I felt like I, I had to choose. Um, that there was, no, like not only was there no coursework, certainly, I, I, I didn't take any writing classes. I, I haven't taken any writing classes. But also just like the notion that you might actually be a novelist was kind of looked down on, mm -hmm. um, denigrated. It was as if it was beneath beneath me, beneath us as, as scholars to actually be creating the things that we were studying. And that seemed like a disconnect that was sort of unfortunate. And the other you know, sort of difficult thing about academia is that there was all of this pressure to, to write, but nobody was ever going to read it. 
And it seemed like a real bummer to me to do all of this work to write something that no one was going to, I mean, yeah. that's the plan. It's not like a failure. They, no one is going to read this. Re anybody reading this is not the point. And I was kind of like, well, it's my, it's my point. And so as I started to part ways with academia, this other way of engaging with novels presented itself to me. It wasn't clear to me that I could write one, but it was clear to me I could try. Was it hard to leave? Did you feel like... It was hard to leave in that the only message I was getting was that, of course, I had to stay. And the failure to do so was failure indeed. You know, because all of my, my, all of my friends, my, my professors, my, my community was very insular at that point. And so that was very difficult. So I was teaching throughout while I was in graduate school. I was... I was, I was teaching and I really, really liked the teaching and I really wanted to be doing it. With students who were engaged and, and interested, I realized that I didn't have to finish in order to be able to get a job at a community college, that teaching at a community college was going to be a better fit for me than at a university anyway. And so I got a job and therefore an alternative certainly made it easier to walk away. That's one of the things I find fascinating about our paths in life. We just have no idea what's going to work. I mean, some, we have maybe an inkling, like there was something to do with literature, yes, right. <laughs> but you have the, the courage and the foresight to say this form of this calling isn't working. Yeah. And I think so many people lose their juice in life and fall into why bother because they don't listen to that because they're afraid of leaving their insular group. Will I be able to do it? But also there's the question in your case of it's more prestigious. It's That's more right. prestigious. And so leaving prestige for what calls you. Yeah. Is which calls huge. you and and which which you may or may not be able to do exactly and which may or may not be clear is very difficult thing to do especially in the creative world because we're like we want we want to be able to do it well I mean you're lucky yes. you're what I would call an idiot story savant <laughs> <laughs> oh my god I love it leaving prestige for what calls you maybe for you you're like prestige whatever but leaving income leaving safety leaving family leaving an identity which is often part of prestige as well how do we reckon with that how do we listen to what calls us not be naive it may not work. And yet at the same time, what do we cut off if we don't listen to it, if we don't make some kind of space for it in our lives? This is part of the reason I wrote my book, Why I Bother. It's part of the reason I do my work. I think that that call has to be reckoned with or we risk dying inside and losing our, our joie de vie, our commitment to growth and life. Um, you know, they're so, they're, they're few and far between. You just get story and how, how story works. And most people, that's what they struggle with in novels. They can get characters or setting or beautiful writing, but that page turning, what's going to happen next and how it relates to the characters. I mean, in one, two, three, there's not, you'd only do it with one character. You do it with three characters who all have significant issues which I won't reveal, but they must have been really challenging to do that as a writer because you really made yourself a Rubik's Cube. <laughs> yes, 
it was it was not an easy book i you know some books write easy and some books write hard and this was very hard it took a yeah. really long time to do and just to sort it out i mean and for exactly that reason and i mean and indeed i i do think that i i think about story in a very fundamental way like it orders my life and it orders my thinking and it is at the forefront of all of the things it's the thing that hangs over everything else but it is also true that it's work to put that together in a very like non-romantic technical kind of way that is simply you know moving pieces around and and editing and editing until it fits and it works together and thinking about like okay in order to pay this thing off here i need to plant that four times where is it going and how am i doing it so it is that savant like thing in some ways and in other ways it's it's not at all. It's right. You're very conscious like of doing it. <laughs> but you know what, what's interesting too, just to go back to the whole prestige thing, is some of the writers I work with think that's cheating. How so? What do you mean? You remember it's like the John Gardner school. It's all yeah. supposed to just come from the characters and you're not supposed to, the author is not supposed to manipulate anything. And I'm like, that's not going to, that just <laughs> doesn't <product>. work. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, I find it, it works for me, eventually, the characters make their own decisions and do their own mm -hmm. thing. Eventually, writing becomes like reading for me, where I type it and I'm like, oh, oh my God, I can't believe it. I didn't see that coming. I'm so surprised, but not at the beginning. So mm. it's a question of like developing the character and the story and the setting and the timeline and getting everything in place strong enough that then they are able to. Oh, interesting. And then, and then there's less of that. I have to make sure I pulled that in from 12 pages ago. And Right. Or I see like, oh, I see where you were going. I didn't realize that I need to go back and fix okay. everything right. that came before in order to right. make it go with this thing that I didn't that I didn't realize was coming. I love that. That totally makes sense to me. I, I want to go back to this idea, though, that you never studied writing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there's anything to be sheepish about. She's doing a sheepish face. <laughs> <laughs> I was doing a sheepish face. You know, I think that that's true. In fact, what I did do was study text a lot. I read a lot, a lot, a lot. And that I think is the best preparation for writing is reading everything you can widely and thinking about it critically and being surrounded by other people who are willing to think about it critically. And so the fact that they were doing it from a reading perspective and I was unbeknownst to me learning how to write mattered less than the fact that we're going to say like, okay, for, you know, 60 hours a week here, what I'm going to do is read books and talk about them, read, look at story, look at language and how it's working. And that is really, really good training, even though I write in class. For those of you who are listening, who aren't novelists, who aren't writers, and you're like, well, what, is this, what does this mean to me? How can I apply it? I mean, it's the same thing. You are surrounded by crafts people, by experts, by masters, by geniuses in your field. Are you studying them? Are you putting in the time like Lori talks about and to really reflect and not stop at that surface level, which I do all the time. Well, that's really good. Instead of really digging in, it takes more work. Our brains don't like to do that work, but that kind of reverse engineering, how did they layer that color? Why do those colors look good together? Why do I like them? Why do those stitches work? Why does that pattern in that quilt work? That's the secret in plain sight. We're surrounded by teachers. 
the best teachers in the world in our craft all the time if we're willing to put in the time and listen and look and reverse engineer. Do you still read that way now? Yeah, I do. So can you take us in a little closer to that? What does that look like? One is that I'm reading constantly. The time I spend between books is the time it takes me to put the one down and pick up the next one. I take notes in the margins. I underline and, and make lots of notes. to margins it on the end pages and such little notes. Mm-hmm. Myself. But also after I finish a book and without fail, I write a little essay to myself basically that says, okay, here's what worked about this novel and why. And here's what didn't work and why it didn't. And here's how that applies to me and what I'm doing in my life really, really specifically. And then I'll make a list at the end and it'll be things like avoid overly long chapters, like very, very specific, really nitty gritty, you know, which I think is sort of back to your question about this notion of like, is it organic or not? And the answer is no, it's, it's really not. Rather than saying like, oh my God, I loved this book, looking at it a little bit more closely and saying, okay, like why? Well, I couldn't put it down. Why? Well, because the chapters were all bite-sized and they broke at this, this kind of a moment. Okay. That's really, really practical. That's, that's something that's really concrete and that I'm not going to apply it exactly to my book because my book is different, but the principles will certainly apply. I do that as a practice and I do it without fail. Do you find that you learn more from books that fail than books that are good? Because I do, because I can see it better. And when the books are really masterful, I'm like, I don't know what they did. (laughs) When the books are really good, my notes to myself are like, step one, be brilliant. (laughs) It's not useful to me. (laughs) Whereas when, when they don't work quite, it is much easier to see why they didn't and also what is very easy to say from the bleachers, but for me to look at it and say, okay, if only they had done this, it would have worked. And that's really useful to me, not because I'm going to go back and revise these people's published novel, because of course I am not, but, and good, that would be a weird anyone hobby. Want me to. <laughs> <laughs> but, but applying those lessons, you know, to myself, to my own writing is really good to be able to strip back the outside so you can see the gears and how, how it works and, and how it doesn't work. When you were conceiving of one, two, three. I know people wanted a sequel to This Is How It Always Is. And it was a huge breakout book for you. It was your most successful novel and your first time on the on the big list. Yes. Was it hard to say I'm not going to write a sequel or were you like so clear there's no story left there? I'm done with that. I, I was not clear. And the more people ask, the more I think, well, maybe. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, you know, it's, of course you want to give people more of that if that's what they want. I was, however, very keen for like thematic reasons to end that book without answering the question. I very much did not want to say like, and then he went back to being a boy forever or then she knew she would be a girl forever. I, I wanted to end that book in the middle. So the reason why it feels like you want a sequel is like, that's exactly what I wanted you to feel at the end. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it's part of the question of, of gender. When you're experiencing gender in different ways, that's part of the question. For some people, that's part of the question. That's what was so brilliant about the book is you really, I mean, you gave it to us from the parent's point of view. And as you wrote, do we love our children best by protecting them at all costs or by supporting them unconditionally? Does love mean saying nothing, not even your happiness is important as your safety? 
or does love mean saying be who you are and I would love that person no matter what so you yeah. wrote it from that point of view yeah but you also allowed us to experience the question of gender yeah I mean and indeed I think I think it is a question of gender and I think it is the way a lot of people experience gender and I also think it is the, the experience of being human basically mm -hmm. it is, I mean, it's what you were talking about before about being willing to you know give up this thing that isn't quite working for this other thing that you don't even know if it exists oh my god I, you're right <laughs> that's why the book feels like it didn't end because that's what life feels like all the time you you have to make decisions with not enough information if it were clear what choice a and choice b were then probably you would be able to make a choice but that's never how it works you'd always I and mean, that's what the title means too this is how it always is you always have to leap with incomplete information and, and no idea if you'll land and break both your ankles <laughs> That's, that's what it is like. Yeah, oh, that's so brilliant. I love. I one of the things I love about this is how it always is, and one, two, three is that they almost feel like they almost feel like puzzle boxes. Oh, yeah. Nice. You know, Why? I used to have a puzzle box from Disney World when I was little, and you know, you'd have to like do these things to it to get into the secret compartments. And one, two, three especially feels like that because I was so wondering what you are setting us up. Yes. What are you going to do? And in some ways, you're setting us up for the same sort of, but very different, but but similar theme of these unanswerable, difficult situations and questions in life. Yes. With one, two, three, going into it, it seemed to me to be a really difficult needle to thread, I suppose, because on the one hand, I want you to end this book feeling empowered. I want the moral of the story to be like, well, this thing that you think cannot be done, maybe cannot be done the way you've been doing it. So then you got to think about how else it can be done, the ways that you haven't been told, the ways that have not been offered you, the ways that are not going to be easy, the ways that you're not going to think of right away. Where, where else might you look? How else might you go about this? That happens at the individual level. And then, of course, it's a novel, so it's character driven. So there's all that on the one hand, but on the other hand, I've been worried of late about all of the language of empowerment lets, lets off the hook people upstream who both are responsible for, in this case, extraordinary malfeasance and abuse, and also the ones who have the actual real power to make a difference. So sometimes I have been feeling very concerned about, you know, these like, the, can I say shit on this podcast? <laughs> No, you shitting can. <laughs> it didn't really work as a joke, but yes, you can. <laughs> you know, the shit that comes downstream. That L is literally. literally. Yes, literally. That is, that is not our fault. And that is not in our power, no matter, no matter how good we feel about ourselves and how strong we want to be, to prevent. These are systemic, systemic baked in problems. And the people who, who should address that do exist, but they aren't, they aren't me. And so the book is really trying to figure out a, a balance between, between those things. And, and it is in some ways an impossibility. One of the reasons why for so many years I didn't write another self-help book because I'm so, was so deeply angry at what the personal growth, coaching, personal empowerment world 
does. It doesn't put it in a political or larger context. And when I ended up writing Why Bother after all that, I really struggled with how do you walk that line between seeing the context, but you can't give up. And that's what the girls in the book, they don't give up. Right. And it's really difficult. I mean, it's easier from a place of white privilege. Yeah by far and enough money in the bank than what, what your characters are dealing with. And I know if I were, if I was one of those girls or their mother, I probably would give up. I would have done what the rest of the town did again, not to spoil the story, but yeah. And that would have also been a really, really legitimate, legitimate thing. And two, frankly, would be, you know, you fighting and feeling like, okay, I'm, I'm still standing. So I win when in fact, no, you, you are not winning. There's so much that is, that is stacked against us and that is really, really important to talk about. So indeed, it, that is a very difficult line to tread. I mean, the powers that be don't want us to, they want us to think it's all in our control. Right, yes, exactly. And, and that therefore it's our fault. And that therefore it's our fault, exactly. Mm -hmm. and, and it's not in our control and it's not our fault. And there are people whose fault it is and in whose control it is, you know, and who are often going to great lengths to, to make you believe otherwise. That is the line that I think we all must walk, frankly. We talked a little bit about money and making money as a novelist. Did, yeah. Was it a huge game changer for this is how it always is to become such a breakout? Or had you struct structured your life in such a way that you could keep writing no matter what? Yeah, I mean, yes and no. I think that, as is always, I'm sure the case, there are lots of things that, that go in that go into that calculus. So I was working, I was teaching full time when I wrote all of my first and most of my second novel, and had been doing so for 15 years or so. I wasn't trying to eat off of the novel writing. I, I had a career and, and money saved. And that's good because there's already so much pressure. You don't you don't want to put eating on top of <laughs> oh, I'm trying to you know I'm gonna see like all your novel covers with working and knives on top of them. You know, it is also true that I am married to a software engineer, which is great. Yeah. I mean, it's great because he is great, but it also is great because financially stable mm -hmm. and predictable whereas novel writing is is not predictable it might go well and it might not and even if it does you know i only get paid like twice a year mm -hmm. um, at, at most on good years so it's difficult to, to budget for to plan for in that way it is also true that there are lots of things that go into the the initial contract and and like how how that works that have some to do with how the previous book did certainly but also there are other things that are in, in that mix there. The arc of time is a little bit funky, which is to say that this is how it always is, was out for a while before it started. Right, very right. Well. I remember I remember watching all that and being so excited for you. It, it was so exciting. It was really wonderful. But it did mean that the other, the next book was sort of in progress. I mean, writing it was very much in progress, but selling it also was, was quite a bit underway, I suppose, by mm -hmm. the time. So it's not that it's not linked, but it is nothing like a direct correlation either. Token, what's it like now? You're not teaching anymore, right? I'm not. And I mean, so that's like the first thing. I'm really, really lucky to be financially and otherwise to be able to do this full time. Mm -hmm. Not enough can be said about elevating your hobby to your day job. It takes so much time, brain space, 
to do this. And so I liked teaching and writing at the same time that worked for me, but it's very different than, than being able to, to say like, this is my job. This is, this is my job. I treat it like my job. I'm very serious about it. I, I do not screw around. <laughs> I very diligent. What does that look perhaps. like? Perhaps This is such a good question and a really difficult one to answer at the moment because my kid hasn't been to school in a year and a half. Right. Pandemic. <laughs> oh, how, how quickly I forgot as if life has been normal for the last year and a half. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I used to write whenever she was at school and without question, if she was out of the house, I would sit my ass down and work because that time was very limited and precious. You know, school isn't isn't even almost 40 hours a week. And, you know, that was a habit I got into when she was very, when she's a baby and I was paying for babysitting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at $25 an hour, I was going to sit down and use that time, you know, and it was at that point, it was like 90 minutes or something like that because... At this point, I've been writing in like 15 minute bursts, but in the night, in the morning, on the weekend, on the holiday, um, in the bathroom, in the car, <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's very much a catch as catch can. And, and again, I am lucky that I am a writer who, who can do that, both from a write, like a craft perspective and also like physically. I don't, I don't necessarily need to be sitting at a desk in my super ergonomic chair, I do not necessarily, like I'm not a writer who needs three hours or it's not even worth it. I need it to be quiet. And so I bought a pair of gun muffs (laughs) 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 because I can't even listen to music. Like noise canceling headphones were not gonna do it for me. I just silent. But other than that, you know, I bought gun muffs and sat in the bathroom or stood at the at the sink level, which is like the perfect standing desk, wrote my book. <laughs> Are you working on something new already? Yeah, always. Yeah. Always. Yeah. I mean, as you know, production is long. So mm-hmm. they rest this thing out of my hands at some point and then it's a year and a half before it comes out. Mm-hmm. I would lose my mind if I weren't working on during that time. Can you give us some idea what you're working on? I mean, I would if I if I knew. <laughs> um, <laughs> so well but tell us about that process. Like tell us about the finding the story yeah I am one of those people who I don't know what it is until I get there I cannot outline I'm very much it's not even that I'm a proponent of shitty rough drafts it's just that that is the only thing I can do Mm -hmm. it's really terrible and then I revise it and revise it and revise it and revise it dozens hundreds of times until it takes shape and, and gets good and find it along the way and sometimes that happens fairly quickly <laughs> and not this time. Um, Does so- that scare you when it doesn't yes. happen? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Novels are long. So I feel like if I were writing, I don't know, like poems and I wrote one every day or I were writing essays and I, I could write one every week or so, then I would learn something that I could apply going forward. But novels are, they're very long. So... <laughs> I, what I and and they're very different from at least mine are very very different from different from each other they are they're very different yeah. except for this these themes and the, these big life questions that you take on in different ways yeah. uh, so there, there is a I would say there's a similar feeling again to go to that opening question that I asked you yeah. of coming into a better world or being being asked yeah. to think about a better world Yeah. And these two in particular, I feel are companion novels in my heart. They are. But yes, just from a a craft perspective, all the things that I thought really hard to learn the previous book, probably (laughs) 
are, are not things that are going to help me in the next one because it, it's just a different project. It, it comes together differently. And I've become a different person because, I mean, this book took three and a half years. I've become a completely different person writing. This is how it always is. Obama was president. We assumed that Hillary was going to be next. And in between then and one, two, three, we had Trump and a global pandemic. I mean, I became a different person. Yeah, it's been a tough year. Will you look for books to read like a writer to help you with the problems that you're facing with this new book? Will you go looking for help? Will you try to, I mean, how do you find that? Do you go look in the bookstore now that you can go back to the bookstore, yeah. go back to Elliott Bay? Yeah. Will you, <laughs> third place, Will or will you try to remember things that you've read and reread them or both? Both, know? absolutely, yeah. And just um, reading about new books that are coming out. Oh, and, sure. You know, paying attention, ear to the ground kind of thing. But yeah, I go to Elliott Bay and I talk to the booksellers, I go to the library. Librarians are magic in this way. And I read so much that everything helps me somehow. And mm -hmm. one particular book that I thought was going to help me in some particular way did not. Well, okay, good. Then I'll just read the next one. Right. Right. You know, and I certainly, uh, one, two, three is, is narrated in the first person present tense by three different narrators in terms. And I had never done that before. And that was easy enough to seek out. Sure. Um, Barbara and, Kingslover. Yes. In fact, yeah. it was exactly where I yeah. started. Poisonwood Bible was Poison my first, Bible. Yeah. first one. But lots of people are doing, you know, like it was easy enough to, and it doesn't have to be an exact match. In fact, you probably don't want it to be, but certainly to say like, okay, how else do people use the first person? How else do people use the, the present tense? Um, how else do people change POVs? How else do people change POVs? Which is very hard. It is and, very hard. You know, and just like really from a very nuts and bolts perspective, reading for that and, and seeing, seeing what happens. And then, you know, sometimes you're thinking like, okay, I have had enough, a structure I need to think about theme. So like, this is a book about sisters. I shall read other books about sisters. I um, shall read other books about sisters. <laughs> <laughs> Did having more success with this is all, uh, this is how it always is. I always want to change the title of that book. It was, um, it's a hard title. It's a hard title. It's a hard title for me. Did it make it harder to write one, two, three, or were you already deep enough into it that you were like, oh, okay, this is interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I do know that writing one, two, three was really hard. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that was some kind of block I was having because of the previous book. I think it was just structurally really. It's really, a really difficult, really book. difficult yeah. book. Not to read. It's a pleasure and joy to read. Yeah. It's a page Thank turner. You. Eventually, yeah. eventually it was. It was not at the beginning. And, you know, and it was just a lot to kind of sort out and figure out. And for reasons I do not entirely understand, sometimes everything falls into place quickly and easily. And sometimes it does not. This one, I think, was probably predictable because the structure is such that I could not cut a chapter without cutting three chapters or mm -hmm. add a chapter without adding three chapters. They had each of them to tell their individual stories, plus combined to tell the overarching story. And the overlapping perspective that you would right. go for. I think you only went forward in time, right? You didn't go back. Oh, yes, that is. To show true. it through. Yeah. Which is another incredibly wonderful technique that's confusing you I, I ask you um if you're scared about this book which which makes me want to ask you you know how do you how do you deal with those critical voices uh 
I can tell you what I wish I did, <laughs> what I hope. Okay. I mean, here's what I think. I think some days are better than others. I really, really enjoy all of the aspects of the writing process. So those critical voices are shouted down, I think, my enjoyment of the process and my knowledge that the, this thing that I have written today, these thousand words that I cranked out today are terrible is fine because that's just part of my process. I'm going to write it really badly and then I'm going to fix it later. And that's I don't experience. Later. And so that, yes, that's experience. That is something I have learned along the way. I enjoy writing a shitty draft and then I enjoy making it better. I like all of those things. There's definitely some panic where I think like, this isn't going to come together this time. But emotionally, I find that easier to weather than publication. <laughs> I love what Lori said, that she loves the process of writing. And for years, I used to think focusing on process was kind of airy-fairy, and it was all about product and making the sale and getting it out the door. But the research is really conclusive. The focusing on process is much more motivating, and it actually, the processes of our brain, what's going on in our brain, helps turn off some of that overly critical function. And it's much more positive for goal setting to not focus on the end result, crossing the finish line until we're close to it. And then that's motivating. And I find that even when I'm running, I'm much faster in the last mile when I'm like, okay, we're almost there. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. But if I start thinking at the beginning of a run of how many miles I have to go or what the hill is ahead or how much my you know legs hurt, it's, it's like somebody poured concrete in me. And the same is true for whatever your creative process is. And you can get really granular about paying attention to what do you love about the process? Do you love the sound of the language? Do you love dipping the paintbrush in the paint for the first time? The sensory input from your process, whatever it is, whatever your creative medium or mediums is really wonderful feedback. Don't don't dismiss that. Staying unattached and unfocused from the outcome, which of course is, is a form of meditation because we're humans and we want to know what we're going to get and we want certainty. We have to keep bringing our attention back to what am I doing today? What am I doing right now? Again, the running analogy I learned from Lauren Fleshman, a, a wonderful friend and former elite runner and, and has a memoir coming out next year, is stay with your feet. Stay with your feet. So how do you stay with your process? How do you begin to develop that love? And how can that help you with the feelings of why bother or the critical voices? Drafting and revising and editing and all of those things, which takes years and years and is very hard work, I find to be infinitely easier than putting it out there in the world, which is which is very hard, which is a roller coaster. There are very high highs and very low lows, and sometimes in the same 15 minutes. And right, and especially with this is how it always is because you got so much hate mail. Yeah. And hate mail from people who never read the book. Right, exclusively, <laughs> in fact, from people who never read the book, best I can tell. And, yeah. you know, very personal, very personal hate mail. And it's, I and I don't know what to do about that. I you know, it, This new book has been out for about a week now, so I'm very much thinking about this, you know, at, right at the moment. It's, it is just a very different 
skill writing a book versus publishing a book that's so true what you have to do to be able to write the book is like sit in a room by yourself with people you meet up for three years if you don't have to like visit people or talk to people online so much the better because you're going to be focused on doing what you're doing but then you have to you know, go opposite of that in every way. You have to talk to go me. Go out into the world. <laughs> You're easy. <laughs> um, <laughs> the other thing that I think is interesting is that it is something that I'm selling. It is a job. It is, it is what I do for a living. It is a product that I am hoping people will go to a store and buy. You know, and it is also a distillation of my soul on a piece of paper. <laughs> and mm -hmm. those two things are really not always or even usually in, in concert with one another. But kind of like, did, did you go back to the theme of the last two books? You know, how do we, how do we live with that big question of being an artist in a commercial world, in a capitalist world, without killing ourselves, you know, without killing our, our hearts and quitting? Yes, indeed. Which is certainly more tempting, I think, during the part that seems like the good part. That is like, I think that often people think like, oh, it's, it must be so fun to, to go on book tour and, and have your book in the bookstores and all of this stuff. And it is, it is harder for me to make my way through that than the just showing up at your desk every day. I am uh, <laughs> so delighted we got to ha talk about all of this. It's so rich. It's so wonderful to see you. And I always like to ask this last question. What do you want to learn next? Oh, Jen, that's such a good question about writing, about creating, about life. Who, who can say? It's I, kind of a Laurie Frankel question. It is. <laughs> it is. And you know, I'm, I am always so much more interested in posing questions really than <laughs> answering them. Not, not for you, but um, like for the reader. One of the things is that I think that's what novels are about. Novels are about what people learn and how they grow and change over the course of the thing. I, that's what I think narrative is, is about. So like broadly and generally, I hope my answer to your question is everything and, and often and continuously. I, I hope I'm always learning things and I am certainly always going down rabbit holes. That is, you know, I will sit and read the newspaper in the morning and think, huh, and go and research that stuff and see where it takes me and, and keep reading about it and, and all of those things. More specifically though, gosh, I think we have all of us been through quite a time. It is time to be asking really important questions about, I mean, these things that we're talking about, how, how you take on systems, how you, you fight your own good fight and you feel empowered and you're doing your good work, but not in isolation, how you involve your community, how you think about that in respect to the large systems upstream that are not working in our favor. I think we're having a reckoning on any number of fronts and it's time. So I am hoping to learn really concrete ways to start making the world better, I hope. I mean, it is, but it's large. It's really it's big. Large. It's, I know, I've been a climate activist for want of a better word since I was little and it is, it's overwhelming and hard and you know, whether it's race or voting rights or I mean this in the case of one two three you know the environment but I think story is one way that we're going to do it I do too I think story is one way that we're going to do it and it's certainly the thing that is at my disposal most readily I am not a lawyer I am I am not a politician I'm not super great at public speaking you're it's certainly the I am lucky to 
to have this place to speak because it is the best place for me for me to do so. Um, and I and it certainly is what works for me. The story is where I learn everything and and where I see my way through the things that cannot be seen through. So I, I hope that that is true for other people and I am very blessed to be able to contribute to that in a little small way. Thank you for spending time with us. You are such a good interviewer. You're very, very good at this. <laughs> I'm not Thank surprised. You. You're very, very good at this. <laughs> I appreciate that. So what are you going to take away from this conversation with Lori? I thought there was a lot of really actionable tools. This idea of making notes on the art that you take in, making a little essay, writing or recording or sketching, whatever your medium, whatever works for your brain. I think also another thing, another way to do that is to discuss it with two or three other like-minded creatives in your field. Like what if you all watch a movie even at a different time and then come together and talked about it? If you're screenwriters, for example, or of course a book. So you don't have to do this in isolation. You don't have to do it in writing if that's not how your brain works best, but really giving a thought to how can I reverse engineer things? Love that. <laughs> and obviously I love Lori.